everybody. Thank you for being here. It is great to see all of you. What's that? Gaza, yes. Yeah, it's in the Bible today. We're going to study it. <laughs> well, hello everyone. How are you doing? Welcome to Coastline. I'm so glad that you made it here tonight. If you're watching online, hello. We're so glad you made it tonight. Hey, Nan. Hope all's well. Uh, today I get the fun thing of preaching from my computer uh, because uh, the Wi-Fi was down, the internet's down at the office. So I found out at the last minute. So for me, I am actually a complete Pharisee about my notes. So this, this feels like brushing your uh, teeth left-handed. That's kind of what, what tonight feels like to me. But uh, I'm sure it's only the Lord wanting to push me into greater dependence on him and less on myself. Uh, you know, I usually begin every sermon with either an awkward story about myself or some obscure observation of the world around us like razor blades and candy or something that I noticed in pop culture and all of that's fun and you can count on hearing a lot of that from me in the future. I'm going to keep doing that thing. But uh, tonight I thought I was going to jump right into the sermon and begin to go after the text because I'm so excited about it. I'm worried I'm going to run out of time, and I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in the text that I really want to explore. I really want you to enjoy it. I don't want to lose your attention by telling you stories about uh, the original PlayStation. That is not what we're here for tonight. We want to do the text, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, where we're going to be tonight is in Acts chapter 8, uh, and really it's a story of two lives that are kind of coming apart. Uh, two lives that have hit a place of crisis, two people who have experienced sudden and unexpected disappointment and the ways they kind of journey through it. Uh, the first person we're going to meet tonight is a person that is known only as the Ethiopian eunuch. And although they really have everything in life, uh, the text is going to kind of show us that they have nothing. In one way, they have everything, but really, scripturally, they have nothing. And the second person is a man named Philip. This is our third story that we have about Philip here over the last uh, two chapters. And Philip also, he has nothing, but scripturally, he has everything. And God brings their two lives together on this collision course, both of them in a vulnerable moment, so that they could kind of find each other and through that, find God. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 26. Would you stand with me? We're going to go get it. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot, and stand near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a lamb, like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Is it himself or is it someone else? 
And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray. Lord, uh, what a joy it is to study your word. And Lord, um, I believe the scripture is, is usually plain and clear. And yet, Lord, it has this depth to it. Uh, that is just such a joy to give our lives to the study of it because we never exhaust it. We're never done with it. We've never mastered a passage. There is always something else that you have for us in it. And, and thank you, Lord, for the gift that it is. We always are able to come before the Scripture humble and as learners uh, because of who you are and because of the way your Spirit is with us. So God, be with us today. Teach us uh, and give us a heart like Philip's. And Lord, in a lot of ways, a heart like the eunuchs as well. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. You know, when we read this passage, there is just a ton of detail in it. And it's not going to really get in the way of your understanding of the text. It doesn't change the understanding of the text. But Luke puts all of the detail in there uh, to heighten the story, to give it color and flavor. To us, it seems a little bit irrelevant, these details that don't mean a lot to us. But to the original readers of this book, it would have given them an incredible understanding about who these people were and exactly what their lives were about. Uh, we're told that he, uh, Philip meets this man who is an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, the fact that he's from Ethiopia is interesting, actually. Uh, Ethiopia, if you think about it today, it is on the eastern coast of Africa. It's in the center of the continent. Uh, back in the day of this, in the book of Acts, it would have been far larger than that. In fact, Ethiopia would have been an entire region south of Egypt. So it was just this incredibly large portion of land. It was this huge, huge country. Now, when the Roman Empire was growing, it pushed down into Africa, into northern Africa, and actually it got all the way to Ethiopia, but it never got beyond that. And so in a very real way, Ethiopia was the ends of the earth. It was the absolute boundary markers of the known world. And so when we hear the story that this man is an Ethiopian, in a way we might think he's a barbarian, or in the very least, he is on the fringes of society. Now, Scripture, Jesus, gave the command to go to all the world, go to Ju Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, preaching the gospel. This man represents those people who are at the very edges of the earth. This is as far away from Israel as you can get. We're also told that this person is a eunuch. Now, eunuchs were uh, the bureaucrats of the ancient world. Okay, when you see the word eunuch, you should think of like a secretary of state or a secretary of treasury uh, or the secretary of the interior. They were government officials who kind of made the entire government work. It is a position that has existed throughout the ancient world for over 4,000 years. We have a ton of documents that talk about the lives and the work of eunuchs. Uh, they are not royalty, but they serve the royal family. And 
and they worked really closely with the royal family, helping them govern and rule. They were immensely powerful and immensely influential. But access to that kind of power and that kind of influence came at a really high cost. If you're going to be a eunuch, meaning you're going to have this position, it meant that you had to be a man and you had to be castrated. Okay, So we still use the word eunuch today to describe somebody who has been castrated who, or exists somehow in the intersex between these two, but originally it was a position occupied by somebody who had undergone this procedure so they could be close to this kind of power. There's a reason for that. If you are going to work this closely with the royal family, they have to trust you. And they have to know, in a sense, that you are not going to in a, uh, get into a relationship with anybody in the royal family that might pollute the bloodlines. I mean, the bloodlines of the royal family are everything, so they are the most important thing. So they have to know that the bloodlines are secure with you, and you're not going to be someone who's going to take advantage of the family. And so this was the way that they did this. And again, this happened for four thousand years. When people say the world's getting worse and worse, just point to this sort of passage and go, really? In some ways, it certainly is getting better. Now, here's the other part. This was always willing, well, this was willingly done. Not always willingly done, but by the time we hit this era of history, you made the knowing decision that in order to get access to the royal family and to get that kind of a job and to have that kind of power and influence, this is what it cost you. It was something that you willingly chose. It is not something that happened to you. It is something that you put yourself through for the sake of your career, for the sake of power, for the sake of money. You would allow this to kind of happen. You would give up your manhood in this sort of way. Now, uh, today, lots of people put their family and their life on hold to focus on their career, right? Lots of people kind of make that decision. But in this day, this would have been a huge decision because family was absolutely everything. I know that we say today that family is everything, but really, we can build a lot of status by what we accomplish and by what we do. But in this day, all of your status came from your family relations and from your ability to have children to pass on your life to them. And so, to give up the ability to have children for the sake of power and influence Man, that went against all of culture, all of their values, everything that you would have been taught as this young Ethiopian person. He has made a huge, huge sacrifice in order to serve the government in this way. We're told that he's also in charge of the Kandake. Uh, some of your Bibles might say Candace. I'm more comfortable if we say Candace, mainly because of Phineas and Ferb. But nonetheless, you can call it Candace or you could call it Candace. And what it means is this, is Ethiopia believed that their prince, their king, was the son of the sun. He was absolutely divine. And for him to rule, it was beneath the son of the sun to actually rule. So although he was royal... He didn't actually run the government. The person who ran the government was the king's mother, who is called the Candace. So the mother of the king, she ran all of the government, and it says that this man ran the treasury of the Candace. Now again, remember, Ethiopia is almost all of middle Africa. And this man works for the treasury of the queen. He is a eunuch. This is an incredibly powerful and incredibly influential and an incredibly wealthy person. We can know that he's wealthy by the fact that he's being carried on a chariot. 
Think of that, the distance he's going, being carried in this chariot, and the fact that he has a scroll. In this day, communities owned scrolls. People didn't. They were too expensive. So this is somebody who is immensely wealthy. And finally, he's a God-fearer. We know that he's going to the temple to worship. So he's an Ethiopian who works for the son of the sun, and yet he worships Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's interesting, right? I mean, certainly he grew up worshiping the son of the sun, but at some point that didn't work for him. At some point he began to hear about this God, Yahweh, and his heart began to move towards him. And so although he was a Gentile, he was still worshiping Yahweh. And at this point he is giving up his position for a moment to go travel across the globe to go and worship at the temple in Jerusalem. This man is incredibly devout. Now think about this though. The journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem was 1,100 miles. It would have taken him likely an entire year of travel. It would have been incredibly dangerous. It would have been incredibly hard. And who knows if his job or family or anything else would be available to him by the time he got back from this journey. It would have been long, hard, and dangerous. In fact, Tim Keller says about this journey in this way. He says that you only make such a journey when there is an unrelenting emptiness and loneliness inside of you. You make this kind of journey when you've made a huge life decision and it hasn't worked out. You only make this kind of journey when you suddenly find that the old answers that you had no longer work for the new life that you're living. You only make this kind of journey when the doubts are keeping you up so late at night that you have to do something in order to resolve them. You only make this kind of journey if you believe that if you don't make the journey, your life will never be good. It will never be whole, it will never be valuable, it will never be worth it. And so there is a sense from the text that this eunuch travels, searching for meaning, searching for hope, and trying to find what is missing in his life. I believe it's really a story about a life in crisis, and here's the deal. It's about to get worse when you look at the text. It tells us that he's traveling to Jerusalem to worship, but there's hints in the text that he doesn't actually ever get into the temple to worship. 1,100 miles and doesn't get in. You see, at the temple there were certain people who were not allowed to go indoors and worship there. The whole temple was built in by a series of courts that served as boundary markers about who could get in. There was a place where Gentiles could get in. But, no, but they couldn't go any further. There's a place where Jewish women could go in, but they couldn't go any further. And then there's a place where Jewish men could go in, and then there's a place where the priests could go in, and then there was a Holy of Holies where one priest could go in once a year. So it is kind of like those little Russian dolls where they kind of get smaller and smaller. That is the Jewish temple and how it worked. Now we have this passage here in Deuteronomy 23.1, which speaks, speaks specifically to eunuchs and their ability to worship in the temple. I think we'll put it up here on the side screen. It says this. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. That's the tabernacle or the temple. So 
he wasn't allowed even to the further outmost courts. He had to stay completely on the outside of the temple. And they kept these rules incredibly, uh, with incredible rigidity. In fact, in Acts 21, we're going to get there eventually one day. Uh, but in Acts 21, they believe that the Apostle Paul has brought a Greek man into one court further than he should have been. It begins a riot, which, begins, which ends up with the, the lynching of Paul and will ultimately lead to his death. And so we know in the book of Acts during these days that these laws were kept with precision and with rigidity. And so if this incredibly wealthy eunuch travels all the way to Jerusalem, and if he gets to the gates and they see his position, and they see all of his wealth, he almost certainly would not have been let in. In fact, it is a far greater leap to believe that he made it in, given what the book of Acts tells us, than that he didn't. And so when we see him here in the story, he's on his way home. Having traveled 1,100 miles to the temple, not having gotten in, and he's now turning around and journeying back, more lost than he has ever been in his life. He is stuck now in the terrifying in-between where he knows that home in Ethiopia has no answers for him. And yet the place that he thought he did, Jerusalem, it was just as empty. He had wealth he had influence and he had power, but it was not enough. Everything that he had put his hope and identity in, everything that he had sacrificed for, it all had come up empty. And he now journeys home, not knowing where to go or what to do to try to duct tape his life back together and to salvage the meaning that he thought he was going to find there. You know, he's walking this road and he walks it in crisis. And I think ultimately that is where all of us end up in life, where we end up having to walk some sort of road, having left some place and yet not having arrived at the next place, and living in the challenge of the in-between. We are on the road. We are walking the road when you've left one job, but you actually haven't found another one yet. That in-between is the road that we have to walk. We are on the road when one relationship ends, and we wonder if we're ever going to find anyone who will love us again or love us better or love us like they did. We're on the road when we've been injured, but we haven't been healed yet. We're on the long, difficult path of rehabilitation. We're on the road when we have tried and nothing has changed and we feel like we have to try again. We are on the road when the funeral is over, but the healing from the grief is not yet done. The road is the place between college applications and acceptance. The road is when you know enough to doubt, but you don't have the answers yet. The road is when you see the unhealth of what your life once was, but you have no idea how to leave that behind and actually begin something new. When we don't know where to go, or what to do, we're on the road. And friends, we hate being on the road. We hate being in between. We want to move quickly from one stage of life to the next, from one chapter of life to the next, from difficulty to blessing to blessing to blessing. We hate being on the road, and yet God seems to do his best work when we're on the road. In fact, when we look at Scripture, what we see is God consistently and constantly taking people out of where they're comfortable and to putting them on a difficult road before they're ever going to arrive at what's next or what is new. When God calls Abraham, 
He tells him that you have to leave your land, and I'm going to show you the land that you must go. You have to go walk this road without any idea of where it heads to follow me and to actually know who I am. After the people of Israel, after they had been freed from Egypt, and after they burn everything down with the golden calf, and God tells them that this whole generation is going to die here in the wilderness, another generation is going to be raised up in the wilderness, and it's there in the wild that they're going to learn exactly who God is and what he asks from them. You know, we see from David's life that he spends years of his life living in caves, hiding from Saul or running from Absalom, driven off of his throne and yet not finding out any sort of peace or any sort of closure from the pain that is there. Just a man in a dullum writing the Psalms. We see that Jesus, when he calls his disciples to come follow him, he doesn't take them to a university or a classroom and sit them down and begin to teach them. Instead, he takes them on the road because they're in the life they're going to learn about exactly who he is and what he asks. You see, the road is the place where God takes away all of our clarity, and instead he gives us confusion. And in that confusion, we're finally able to truly hear from him. We're able to actually to truly meet him, truly get to know him. We're able to really experience him because now we're coming to him with open hands, desperate hearts, open ears, wide eyes, and we are looking for him. And it's in that moment God seems to truly show up. No, we hate the road. It's never what we want to be. We want to sprint down the road, but it's not a physical road that you can do that. You can't simply run or speed from one destination to the other because the road is really a journey of your heart. It's really a journey of your soul and of your faith beginning to grow. And those are the kinds of journeys that you just can't microwave. You just have to walk them as difficult or as challenging as they might be. But the hope in it is that as we begin to walk that road is that we find that God walks it with us. That he meets us on the road and he joins us in it and it's where the introductions are truly made and we find out just how good, loving, and kind our God is. And oftentimes, it isn't just God that we meet on the road, but he brings somebody else into our lives to walk the road with us. For this Ethiopian eunuch, this is Philip. And Philip is on a road as well. Just a brief recap for you about who Philip is. We found out about Philip when there was this crisis in the church where the Hellenistic widows weren't getting as much uh, food as the Jewish widows. And so they organized some men to help distribute the food. Philip was one of those incredible men who began to distribute the food. He was serving there along some others, and then including a man named Stephen. But then what ended up happening is that Stephen was killed in a squeezing and in a persecution of the church. And when that happened, Philip had to leave Jerusalem running for his life. He has to leave in a full sprint, gathering whatever he can so that he's not the next martyr. And he's out on the run, fleeing Jerusalem with as much family, as many possessions as he can, leaving his home, leaving his house, leaving his people, probably leaving his family, losing money, fleeing for his life. 
Now, there's all these great moments that happen as he goes on the run. He ends up in Samaria, and there become all of these people who come to know Jesus due to his ministry there. We find out that he actually converts this man named Simon the Sorcerer, and Garrick preached about this last week. And this man comes to faith, and it's an incredible story about how a man who was very far from God gets drawn near to him. And when we hear these stories, we think, what a great missions trip this is. Here he is going out to Samaria to his very enemies, preaching the gospel. Look, friends, this is not a missions trip. This is a guy trying to find a new home. This is a man who's a refugee. This is a man who is on the run. This is a man who has lost everything. And yet due to his profound love of Jesus, even though he has lost everything, he still cannot help but talk about him. He still cannot help but talk about Jesus. And so on the run, having lost everything, his life still ministers. People still come to faith. The problem is he just never saw it coming. It came out of nowhere. And although he's on this road now, he doesn't know where he should go or where God will take him. And the road that God has him on is going to be about learning to care for this new Ethiopian eunuch. I think this is fascinating. Look at verse 26. It says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza. Apparently, there are two roads to Gaza. And God doesn't say, look, it's important that you go to Gaza. He says, it's important that you take this road to Gaza because the point isn't Gaza. It is this man he's going to meet on the road. God knows exactly where the Ethiopian eunuch is, and he knows exactly where Philip is, and he's designing and lining up life and circumstances so that they will meet. In fact, in verse 29, the Spirit comes to him and says, there is a man, go to that chariot and stand near it. Although they never knew where life was going to take them, and they didn't know where life was going to go next, although they never saw any of this coming, God did. And he's been slowly drawing them to each other for this moment. They are not where they want to be, but God has brought them to exactly to where they need to be. And he's going to take these two very different people and bring them together so they could come to faith. And friends, that is just what God does with the church. He takes random, different people who would never hang out and makes them a new family through the blood of Jesus so that they could walk on this journey of life together. Now, when Philip approaches, he, he hears this eunuch reading Isaiah 53. Why this passage? Why is he reading here? Is this just where his Bible reading plan took him that day? Did he just open up his Bible and let it fall and begin reading? I don't think so. And look, I'm going to make a guess here as to why he's reading, but I think I'm right. So if you look at Isaiah 53, just a few chapters away in Isaiah 56, there is a passage about eunuchs. More than that, there's a passage about eunuchs and the temple. I believe that he was reading this passage after just having left the temple not being allowed in and is trying to find meaning and purpose. This is Isaiah 56, 3. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, uh, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. 
And so it seems that this eunuch had gone to Jerusalem, had been turned away due to his status, due to the process he'd undergone. And as he left, he remembered this passage in Isaiah and began to read about how God promised that one day being a eunuch would not be the most important thing about him. One day that this thing that excluded him, God would overcome and would draw him in. That one day, not only would he be allowed into the temple, but one day there would be a memorial there to him and his name that would be greater than anything he had lost here on this earth. It is an incredible promise to a man in his most vulnerable moment. That's why he's in Isaiah 50s. That is why he's reading there. And yet as he reads, he begins to wonder, it seems, how will this happen? How will one day I be allowed in the temple? How will this memorial come to be? How will this come to be? And it seems that there he comes to verse 32, which is a quote of Isaiah 53. That one day there is one who's going to come, who will be like a sheep to the slaughter, and who will be like a lamb silent before its, she- she- its shears, who will not open his mouth, and who he will be humiliated and deprived of justice, that he will not have descendants just like him, and his life will be taken from the earth. And yet, that passage also says, on this person, the guilt of all of us will be placed on him. So it seems that he's like, God's promise is that one day I'll be led into the temple, and he'll redo all of the things that happened in my life. But who and how is going to be the suffering servant? But he doesn't know who the servant is. He doesn't know if it's Isaiah or someone else. And it's at this moment that God has brought Philip here to explain it to him. That he's going to explain that this person, Isaiah is not speaking about himself, but he's talking about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And Philip, and the eunuch knows it. He says, how can I understand this and let somebody else explains it to him? You see, that's the state of every person who doesn't know Jesus. That unless somebody explains it to them, we're all lost trying to find meaning and purpose in our lives, trying to figure out what to do upon the road. Unless somebody comes and explains it to us, then we are what the scripture says that we are, lost, with eyes that cannot see and the ears that cannot hear. They need people to be witnesses to them on the road. And for you and I to be witnesses on the road, we need to basically do four things that we see here that Philip does. First, we have to be sensitive enough to the Spirit that we know where to go and we know what to do. You and I, if we're going to ultimately be witnesses to people on the road as our journeys cross, that you and I need to be sensitive enough to the Spirit that we know where to go and what to do. It says here that an angel speaks to Philip and tells him to take the road. And then the Spirit speaks to Philip and says, go and approach that chariot. That Philip is this man who is so sensitive to what God is saying and doing that he knows exactly what God would have him do in every moment. Friends, I so badly want that to be us. Where we so recognize the voice of God in our life that we're constantly attending to God, what would you have me do today? God, who would you have me speak with? God, what would you have me do? Who could I serve? And we would be constantly listening for God's voice and that that would direct us into important encounters with people on the road. We have to have hearts who recognize the people that God has set us up to meet and witness to. The second thing, you and I have to be willing to run run alongside the people of this earth. 
We have to be willing to run alongside the people of the road. I love the story that you have this chariot that's moving. It's probably carried by four people. It's not a wheeled chariot, it seems. It seems like it's a carried one. And there you just have Philip running alongside of it. And he's trying to talk to the guy in it. Hey, what's your reading? It's an awkward encounter, and yet he's so compelled by God that he's willing to do it, but it takes him being willing to walk along somebody in this moment. And friends, you and I need to be living alongside and walking alongside the people of this world. We have to recognize that we actually have something to give them, that we have the message of Jesus, and that that is the best thing for every person. That is, in fact, what every human heart longs for and is looking for. And so we have to be in relationship and running alongside of people so that we can actually begin to speak to them. The third thing we need to do, we need to help people see how God is working in their lives. I think what a gift that would be if we could help people begin to see that out of the crisis and out of the paralysis of the road, that God is still with them, that he loves them, that he knows their name, and we'd begin to help them connect and reach out to God uh, as they begin to do life with him. You know, we, we pray with people a lot uh, in ministry. Garrick and I, everybody, Nikki, Rochelle, we pray with people a lot. But what I love to do is to get people to pray for themselves. Because people will say, I've been praying about this a lot and I don't know what to do. But really what they mean most of the time is they've been thinking about it a lot. They haven't actually been praying about it. And they think that me as a pastor praying for them is going to be the solution to their problems, but it's not. It's me helping them learn how to speak to God themselves and know him. How to stop thinking about it and begin speaking about it. That's one of the things that we need to do. And finally, we need to be able to explain the gospel clearly and concisely. I love that Philip is given this passage out of Isaiah 53, and he's like, I could preach Jesus out of that. I can do that. And I think so many of us, we know the gospel story, but we don't know it well enough to actually share it. When I was in college, we used to, uh, I was really involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, and I was a missionary for about three months. And one of the things we do is try to share the gospel in one minute. Can you do it? If you're in an elevator, can you tell somebody the gospel in a minute? Look, there's a God who loves you, and yet the reason why you can't know God is because of sin in your life. And yet God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for that sin so that you could know him and live with God forever. Are you interested? Boom, it's done. Can you actually communicate the gospel to somebody if they ask? If not, then the only thing you have to offer on the road is comfort, but not the solution and perhaps the very reason why God has them there. And it's then that we see the most beautiful part of the story, the end of the road. Look at verse 36. This man has been through an experience where he has gone to Jerusalem and has not gotten in. His life has been in crisis. He has heard the gospel preached to him by Philip. And then look at verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Do you realize the power of that question? What had stood in the way of him having a family? His decisions. What had stood in the way of him getting to go into Jerusalem? His decisions. But what can stand in the way of him coming to faith in Jesus if he comes by repentance and faith? Nothing. Can he enter the temple? No. Can he come into the presence of Jesus? Yes. Why? Because when we couldn't enter the temple, God came out of the temple to us through Jesus Christ. 
and removed every barrier that might ever keep us away from him so that nothing can keep him away from God, nothing can keep him away from baptism if he comes by faith and confession. And that's exactly what he does. That's exactly what happens here in this passage. Since he could not go in, God came out. And look at verse 26. It says that then the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. It lets you know that that's a change in status. That before he came, met Philip, he was in trouble. That he was in sorrow. But after, that's when joy came. It lets you know that before Philip came, he had been in that crisis that we've been talking about. But once he hears the gospel and receives it, then he receives joy. There's a guy named Robert McKee who is, leads screenwriting classes. If you ever want to write a movie, you go to usually a Robert McKee screenwriting course. And he has this to say. He says, joy is the feeling that you have when your character's conflict is over. Joy is the feeling that you have when your character's conflict is over. This eunuch had lived in conflict for so long, and yet in this moment, when he receives Jesus, the conflict is over. He has come to faith. He has met his maker. He's been renewed. He's being transformed. Everything he's done is forgotten, and he now lives in the very presence and the joy of God. His long way from home, his long road has ended, and he's come home in Jesus. Friends, God does his best work in us when we're on the road. And you, and you probably are today in some way, or you have been, or, or you will be. And usually when you are the most confused and you feel the most stuck, God is the most at work. And maybe you're there because of your decisions, or maybe you're there because of somebody else's decisions. And you might feel profoundly lost in this moment. But I just want to remind you that God knows exactly where you are. You don't know where you are. You don't know where your life is going. But God knows exactly where you are. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, in your relationship to him, he knows exactly where you are. And he also knows exactly where he's going to take you. And so with that comes the calming hope that God is still at work even when we feel like we're in the fog. And I can promise you that, that all roads have endings. They don't go on forever. In fact, we know that from this passage, well, actually from some later work, that this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, church fathers, especially Eusebius, says that he returns back to Ethiopia and he becomes the first missionary to Ethiopia and starts the first church there. What God changes in his life on the road becomes something that's talked about two, three hundred, four hundred years later where people say, you know that church, you know how it started? It started because of this man. His life turns and it's never the same again. And Philip's life isn't the same either. It says that he continues to travel to Gaza and we will meet him again in Acts 21, living in Gaza, but now he has four daughters who are all prophetesses. He it's married, apparently. He has children, and his life kind of enters into a new chapter. It felt like it was the end. It felt like his life had come to a close. It felt like it would never be good again, and yet God takes his two people on the road and brings them to something good and has something hopeful in it. And look, that just might be part of your life, is to get to walk someone through that journey, to take them down that pathway and to help them find him. What a privilege that is, right? To get to walk with people on their own journey on the road, to not be overwhelmed by it, but to help them travel. And it always begins with, yes, loving, but bringing them back to Jesus, who is the ultimate source of joy, the ultimate source of hope for all of us who wander and live in this difficult and dangerous world. Let me pray. Lord,
God, when, whenever we kind of come and tap into people's pain or tap into their struggles or tap into their journeys, it's hard to ever um, just kind of sum it up and feel like a sermon does it all. Lord, I know for some people this is just going to feel like a little bit of hope that's going to get them to tomorrow. And for other people, it's going to feel like a, a new compass heading for them, a sudden sense of where north is. But God, we pray that wherever people might be tonight, that you would be ultimately the Lord of the road, meeting them in the midst of their pain. That, Lord, you would take that pain and ultimately work it for good in their life. Lord, pray for the rest of the night that you'd help us, regardless of where we are, to be worshipers, to come and sing to you. And Lord, that we could be a church that loves to meet people on the road and is our faithful guides to people as they go. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Look, we're going to dismiss our prayer team off to the sides. We're going to keep worshiping. Look, if you are on that road, if you're in the in-between, if you're feeling the chaos of it, these are really good people who would love to pray with you. I can't promise you that they're going to give you an answer, but they're going to bring you to the one who does. Uh, and would love to speak with you. So feel free to get up. You don't need to be embarrassed. Uh, every one of us has been before them at some point uh, carrying and sharing our burdens. Uh, you don't need to be embarrassed about that. But come, let's worship a God who's good and who truly never, never abandons us or lets us go.